I once came across a calendar, a Christian calendar, and it quoted Luke chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And it says, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. What a nice verse. What a nice sounding verse that we get to have this glory and we get to have this authority if we would just worship. That's really neat. Well, maybe not. If you understand who said this, if you under, if you know who said this, you might think again about adding this to the calendar. Because Luke chapter four is where Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And Satan literally says this to Jesus. This is what Satan says to try to tempt Jesus. This calendar takes the word of Satan and then like tries to twist it and apply it to us. Have you ever heard somebody say something like, the Bible says dot, 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 and they might actually be right and the Bible actually says that, but they're just taking a verse or two out of the scriptures and they're trying to apply it to ourselves in a way that like the scriptures never intended. They're trying to take something that didn't mean this and trying to apply it in this way. And we can recognize that it's wrong, but maybe we don't know how to articulate that. Like this isn't right. And so today I want to give you the tools to recognize and to answer how this is wrong. And today we have a verse that we, that has been taken out of context time and time again. Hi, I'm Pastor Robert. Welcome to Riverside Friends Church. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. It's, so there's this verse in here that I want to spend a lot of time unpacking, and it's verse 34 in 1 Corinthians 14. It says, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. And those are really strong words. I'm going to say that these words are not to be interpreted literally, that, we're, that we were never meant to interpret them literally. And some people might hear that and think that I distrust the authority of Scripture, that I don't value the authority of Scripture, and that's not true. I place a high value on the authority in teaching the Bible. And I also believe that wherever Scripture might lead us, we must follow it faithfully. And so when I say that this verse is not meant to be taken literally— I understand that I better have a good reason. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you just open up this verse to us and this text and this whole this whole series of texts all right around here. Lord, we just want to know you more and to enter into this. And so we turn this over to you in this time, Lord. Amen. Should we always take the scriptures literally? That's going to be like the first question, right? Should we always take the scriptures literally? So I want to give you three historical examples and show that how we tend to read scripture, I think there are like three different ways that we tend to do this. And I want to show you these ways using like the example of the Civil War. Um, there's this wonderful book called The Civil War as Theological Crises by Mark Knoll. Um, if you're a nerd with overlapping history of historical theology and like 19th century American history, like this book is for you. Like if you love historical theology and 19th century American history, this book is for you. If not, well, for one, what's wrong with you? And two, let me just like summarize it then. In the lead up to the Civil War, 
like there was a lot of arguments going back and forth, right? Both the North and the South were using the Bible as justification for their positions, right? Both the North and the South used the Bible to justify their positions. The Civil War was about slavery. And some people might try to argue states' rights, but the state right was slavery, right? The South used scripture to try to justify owning people. And they used the plain reading of scripture. That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about plain reading. That just means let's take it at face value. So they came up, they read through scriptures, Ephesians 6, 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. There it is. According to the Southerners, according to the scripture, owning people plainly endorsed by scripture. It's hard to argue with. The North used scripture as well to say, God is a God of freedom. He comes to set people free. That's a biblical truth. They used general principles from scripture to say, in total, the Bible presents an ethic of love and owning people isn't loving, so you should let them go. But here's the mistake that they made. They read over the verses a paradigm from the rest of scripture, and they don't allow these verses to speak to themselves. Because we have to wrestle with the fact that Scripture actually says, slaves obey your masters, and women keep quiet in the church. The northern theologians, they failed to wrestle with these verses in a real way. The north didn't make a great argument, and there are a number of issues theologically with their arguments and their hermeneutics. If you want to hear those, you can read the book. But oftentimes, we tend to paint the Civil War as white northerners versus white southerners. And what we do is we forget. We forget or ignore that there was a really strong and unified position within the black voice. People in slavery and with and without, like in slavery and outside of slavery, had a unified story that they told. We can oftentimes think about, oh, they're white northerners, white southerners, and that's it. And we forget this whole paradigm of a black hermeneutic. Because the white southerners, they said... Plainly, Ephesians 6, 5, slavery is fine. The white northerners said, read about the generalities of God's love. Slavery is bad. The black voice, though, said, we are God's people in God's story. Said the exodus is our story. We are people being brought out of slavery by God. And they latched on to the Exodus story where God brings out the people from slavery in Egypt and declares that this is really about me as God. This is really that God says, this is really my story. This is something I'm doing. And then the African-Americans inside of slavery here in the United States said, this is about us. This is about our God. And what they did is they grasped a truth about scripture that we might understand, that we must understand, that we are a part of God's story as well. God is for the downcast and the disenfranchised. And every time that the Bible gives a command regarding slavery, God tells his people, treat the slaves better than the surrounding nations. Not only are they supposed to treat them better but as time goes on across the Bible from Old Testament to New, their treatment with Israel, within Israel gets better and better. And so what they do is they cast this vision of, hey, it might start down here, but this redemptive spirit that God presents 
looks forward to and projects this ultimate ethic in freedom for slaves. And the black voices of the Civil War understood this ethic. We have to remember that this scripture was not written to us. It was written for us, but not to us. You know, this week marks the, I don't even know what number of year. This, this is the week that Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. And that was what, 80 years ago or something? No, 60 years ago? That was 60 some years ago? Even though like the Civil War had been over for a hundred years, Martin Luther King still had this dream that has not yet been realized in our nation. And I think we can sort of see that, that there was this idea of, okay, the slaves have been set free, but then there was Jim Crow that got in the way. And there was like voting rights issues. And there was uh, issues of separate but equal that was never really equal at all. And it was always destined to fail because it doesn't work that way. That's not how you form communities. And so even then... Like, even though we like we freed the slaves, we still had work to do. And we can sort of see that there's this trajectory that we've been on to hopefully find someday we can live out Martin Luther King's, Reverend King's dream. And that's the same thing that happens in the Bible. Because the scripture was not written to us. It was written for us, but not to us. This book was written over the course of 1,500-ish years, some 2,000 years ago. Paul was not thinking of you when he wrote this. The Spirit had you in mind, but Paul did not. And we must wrestle with these verses in their context and see how they traject forward in our time today. And so when we come across verses like 1 Corinthians 14, 34, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but they must be in submission as the law says. We need to ask ourselves, how am I reading this verse? Am I reading it plainly, like the Southerners of the Civil War? Am I trying to read over it a biblical truth that allows me to ignore this verse like the Northerners? And instead, we must ask ourselves, what did this mean for the people who first heard it? What is the grand story? What is the big picture? What is the context is the word that we sometimes use. We sometimes use context. So we need to use a context to understand 1 Corinthians 14, 34. I'm going to take a moment. We're going to read through verses 26 to 33. These are the verses kind of leading up to this. Um, Let's take a moment and read it. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace as in all the congregation of the Lord's people. So let's pull out some of the key verses in this text to help us understand the context. Because Paul is speaking about worship and what happens when the people gather to worship. And he's using this Greek word here to gather together, sunerkomai. And Paul has been using this word a bunch of times for the last three chapters, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we have to remember like, 
everything from 1 Corinthians 11 onward up to now has all been about worship and particular unity in worship. And how do we have unity in worship? Going back to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about communion. How do we have unity in communion that focuses not on hey, on rich and poor dynamics, but instead of how do we make sure that everybody has enough to eat? And then as we got into 1 Corinthians 12, we saw in the body of Christ that Paul is really focused in on unity and the church working together. In 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter is all about love inside the context of the church. And now in 1 Corinthians 14, we've come back to worship to say, hey, this is about unity. So when you come together, when you sunerkomai, you need to do it in a unified way. And Paul is saying in this coming together, if you have a word, a hymn, or whatever, it should be done so that the church may be built up. Paul goes on to say that this coming together, this worship, it needs to be orderly. There's an order to do this because as 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Did you know a lot of thinking and planning went into like how we order our worship service at Riverside Friends Church. So I think about our worship as a as a dialogue between God, between us and God. It's dialogical. There's a conversation, a dialogical, a dialogue. It's a conversation between God and us. See, God initiates the conversation and he reveals himself to us. And in the gathering phase, God invites us into his presence. We start every meeting with a verse that reminds us of God's presence with us. And then we hear a call to worship. God invites us to worship him. And that's the purpose of why we do a call to worship every week. And next we turn, we take our turn in the conversation. We respond to God's invitation with a prayer and with songs of praise. And next comes the word where God speaks to us then through open worship and the message. And then we respond back in prayer and praise again. I try to put a response for us to do back to God at the end of these messages that I give. Then we move into the table, right? The table is where we enact and we live out the story of God. Traditionally, this has looked like communion, but in the Friends Church, it's this repetition of praise to God. It is us being, feeling the presence of God. And then we move into the sending. In the sending phase, we are reminded by God of his call into our lives. We give him our offering and he sends us out into the world. The benediction I give with the final call, the let's go, is the weekly sending from our Lord to us to go into the world and carry this conversation forward. See, God has given us an orderly worship. And I've thought a lot about how do we embrace a worship service that reflects God's revealing himself and us responding, this back and forth conversation between us and God. In scripture, God is continually revealing himself to his people. At the same time, he calls them to be like him. The people of Moses' time saw a glimpse of God in his glory in the fire and in the presence at the tabernacle. And Moses had an encounter with God. And Hebrews 11, it lists off like, all the greatest people in the Old Testament from Abraham to Moses to the prophets, and they all interacted with God in a real way. Yet check out how that that story ends. Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 said, yet all of these, all of the greatest people in the Old Testament, your favorite Old Testament, a person, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, and God had something provided something better, so they would not apart from us be made perfect. 
The better thing that was promised was Jesus Christ. God made himself knowable as a human in a unique way in history. And now he is a knowable through the Holy Spirit. And in our worship service, we begin with something light, the call to worship, praise, prayer. And then we get heavier as we move into the word. God reveals himself and invites us to his table and to live in his story. And there's a continual revelation about God to us. Let me put it this way, right? Because that's a lot of stuff that I just dropped there about our worship service and whatever. When I think about the relationship that I have with Sarah, I loved her when we got married. But the love I have for her now you know, this month is our 10 month, our 10 year anniversary. The love I have for her now blows away that I love that I had for her then. As I've gotten to know her better and she has revealed more of herself to me, I get to love the deeper parts of her heart. And God is doing the same thing in our worship service. He starts with the outside. He starts with the surface. He starts with something light and he moves us deeper and deeper and closer to him. That's a reflection of our lives as well, because God has put into our worship. He's put order into our worship, but he doesn't do it just because. God desires an orderly worship because it is how God reveals himself to his people. God makes himself known through worship. Disorderly worship clouds God's design. I would invite you to experience the worship service as a conversation with God. We as his people are in dialogue with him. What happens when people start to disrupt this worship service? What happens when people start to disrupt the service? Because Paul has told three people to remain silent, not just the women. In verse 27 and 28, Paul says that if somebody is trying to speak in tongues and there's nobody to interpret, they need to be silent. If a prophecy is made and the people are weighing the prophecy, that kind of means like if they're considering what it means, they're kind of speaking, they're articulating it, they're sort of envisioning it and kind of preaching about it. If they're doing that and somebody else receives a prophecy from God, then the person weighing the first prophecy should be silent. Verse 29 and 30. And finally, in verse 34 and 35, it says women should remain silent in the church. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Paul, in the, in the interest of having the worship service build people up and telling the grand story, tells tongue speakers who can't interpret, prophecy ponderers who keep talking, and women who are somehow interrupting the service to remain silent. We're going to quickly focus in on these women who should remain silent. Paul says women should remain silent in the church. In ancient times, being silent in public was the norm. Plutarch, the ancient philosopher who lived, uh, you know, a few years after Paul, they kind of had a few overlapping years, but Plutarch outlived Paul. Plutarch wrote, not only the arm of the virtuous woman, but her speech as well ought not to be for the public. She ought to be modest and guarded about saying anything in the hearing of outsiders, since it is an exposure of herself. For in her talk can be seen her feelings, character, and disposition. Now, Plutarch wasn't a Christian. He's a Greek philosopher. 
believed in the Greek gods. Plutarch is saying, if a woman opens her mouth, we might find out who she really is. And for some weird reason, he sees that as a bad thing. So then is Paul agreeing with Plutarch that women should be silent in public? Well, if Paul is leaving any room for women to speak in public, it'll be liberating for the hearers of the first hearers, first off. But my contention is that Paul does not agree with Plutarch. Here's why. Let's ask, who are the people who are offering prayer and giving prophecies? Who are these people? In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul began this long section on worship, he describes how a woman ought to pray and prophesy. Women, women are encouraged to pray and to offer prophetic words. How does it work then that 1 Corinthians 11, or excuse me, that 1 Corinthians 11 tells women to pray and prophesy and 1 Corinthians 14 tells them to be silent? Like a plain reading of scripture could say that women during the church service must pray and offer a prophetic word silently? Like I can get that how you can pray silently, but how do you offer a prophetic word in silence? That doesn't work. A prophetic word is something that is shared with the congregation. So something is happening here. Like you can't do that in silence. Something is happening here and we must get to the bottom because I don't think Paul is contradicting himself three chapters later. Paul then mentions some law. He says they must remain silent in accordance and there to be in submission as the law says. What law? We don't know. We don't know. There is no law in the Old Testament that commands women to remain silent. We don't know what this means. Here is how I think that we need to understand this set of verses. There is a historical context. Something is happening inside of this church that is obvious to the people of Corinth, but that we don't know about, that we don't fully understand it. I can guess, like some scholars have made some guesses, and I like have a guess that I'm going to put forward here but I'm open to being wrong about this, right? Paul adds, so this is what I want, that I'm open to being wrong about, but this is my guess. And it's like the guess of some other scholars as well. Paul adds that these women, they should ask their questions at home to their husbands. In the ancient world, if a wife publicly disagreed with her husband, that was seen as shameful and humiliating. Perhaps some of the men had been offering prophecies. And then their wives would question them on those. These wives were using the opportunities to weigh the prophecies as their chance to shame their husbands in front of the church. They would ask disruptive and challenging questions during the worship service. So silence in this context somehow means not just don't talk, but is connected with asking questions, in particular, inappropriate questions for the time. I think that we can all agree that there is a time when you should and shouldn't speak. Do you want to hear the most embarrassing thing I've ever done? The, probably the most embarrassed I've ever been. I'm sure you do. So I'm going to go on. I was in St. Louis at the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis. It is a giant, giant church. Um, there are these angels that are painted on this wall, like the, the, the sanctuaries in like the shape of a cross. And if you stand at the center of the cross and look up, you look up and there are these four angels like overlooking each wing that like lead out to the cross and whatever. 
and you look up and you don't realize it until somebody tells you the angels are 30 feet tall. And if you stand at the center and you look all the way from floor to ceiling, it is 14 stories high. You can put like here in Mason City, there's the brick and tile building. You could stack that on top of itself again and it would stand inside of this room. It is giant. It is massive. It is expansive. Pope John Paul II visited this church and there are photos of him. You can kneel in the same spot as, as the Pope, as Pope John Paul II. And there are like wear marks in the granite floor from people kneeling in the same spot. Um, I walked into the room with a group of college kids and there's like a bunch of nuns praying over there and there are like photographers taking pictures over here. And there are like these people that are being overwhelmed by the vastness of the space and the feeling of God. And I walked in and said, it's a bit gaudy, 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 gaudy. And my voice just echoed through the room. Suddenly, every eye was on me. These nuns turned to look at me. These like photography class turns to look at me. And I thought I was going to get beat up by nuns on one side and like photographers on the other side. Luckily, there was this uh, a dear friend of mine, um, Bailey Hupp. She's beside me. And she goes, shut up. And that's how I learned that there's a time not to talk in church. I think if Bailey had not told me to shut up, like these nuns would have beat me up. So we, it's the most embarrassed I've ever been. I mean, it, my voice just echoed. So we could approach the scripture the easy way and say, look, it says women shouldn't speak. So then we will put rules into place so that they don't. And I think these women, they were asking questions in such a way that it really served as a distraction from what God was doing in worship. It'd be like, like me bursting out, it's a bit gaudy. These women brought all the attention to themselves. And we don't know what their questions were, but we can probably know our own. Like there are these questions that we might ponder. Why does he dress like that? Why doesn't he wear nice clothes to preach? Why do we do this music and not the hymns I grew up with? Why does he preach like that with that style that he has? Why isn't he more like our other pastor or something? And the question we must ask ourselves is, does this, do, do my questions, do they build up or tear down? Do my questions lead to peace and order or disorder and chaos? Because God is a God of order. And so often these verses, they've been used a ramrod, a position that limits the contributions of women in the church. I want you to know that Paul has already said women have a place and role in the church. He's already said that. He's not contradicting himself again. He's not contradicting himself now and saying like, never mind, I've rethought it. And so any position that states otherwise, that women don't have a role or a voice, misses the foundation that Paul has already laid. And so here's what I want you to know. God has a place for you. Your voice matters. We need to hear your voice. I need to hear your voice. I want God to get the glory he deserves from your voice being lifted up. This is a conversation between us and God. And if your voice isn't in the conversation, we're lacking. And if you don't know what that looks like, if you don't know what how to do that, perhaps the next step for you is our membership class. 
on Sunday, September 27th, after church, um, not September 27th, September 17th, sorry, Sunday, September 17th, after church, we'll be holding a new member class for anyone who is not a member. This is a time where we explore how God might be calling you to serve in this community here, in this context here, so that your voice and your input could be added because your voice is valuable and important. God's kingdom is lacking without it. You have something to offer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, very thankful for all that you've done and given to us. And we just ask that you would allow our voices to be heard. Would we not read your text plainly, but would we seek out the depths of it and try to consider how you might be applying it to us today? Lord, would you just help us to consider it in our hearts and ponder you? We just want to ask this in your name, Lord, and would you just show us how our voices can be added to your choir and your kingdom? We pray this in your name. Amen.